Well, it's good to be back with you. Uh, we had an amazing trip, in spite of some sickness. Why, uh, it was just a, an amazing experience to be in Israel and to uh, be with the people I got to be with. Uh, it's kind of a funny thing, you know, especially after traveling with Camilla like that, joined at the hip for 10 days. It's a weird thing to be separated for an hour. But uh, anyway, uh, we just had a very amazing experience. And uh, I trust that uh, God will use it in each and every one of our lives. We had a chance to catch up with the McElroys while we were there in Jerusalem. And uh, several of us got to spend some time with them, hearing what God is doing in and through their lives. And uh, so, if it's something you want to do sometime in the future, uh, we're just tentatively looking forward to maybe another one in two years. So, save your shekels. It's not cheap to be spoiled and to see a place halfway around the world. So, I got to tell you, though, I was bummed to miss last Sunday. Um, Roberta has an amazing way of making me very uncomfortable and make me function outside of my comfort zone. Did any of you experience that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I get to see her at board meetings, and uh, she's just one of those loose cannons that God uses in crazy ways for God and has for so many years. And so miss that, miss Brooks and his uh, encouraging us in praise and prayer. Uh, very interesting singing a cappella, isn't it? I know some of you, that's your tradition. One of my regrets in... Uh, in my Christian life is that I did not sing and lead my family in singing a cappella during family devotions and other things. And, uh, and I'm convinced the reason why is because when you listen to Christian music, it's at a level of who can compete. And even in church, uh, who can duplicate that? And it was really Daniel Henderson when he came and shepherded us into worship-based prayer and a lot of spontaneous uh, singing that I realized I had been missing leading my own family in this. And, uh, and consequently, we have gotten a lot better at it. Uh, it easily slips off the radar, so thanks for the reminder this morning to get this back because uh, singing is so critical. And if all you do is listen to it, and all you do is participate in church, you're still missing a huge dynamic of it. And so I would just beg you, in your personal devotions, add singing to the Lord. And in your couple devotions, if you're married, add it. And if you're a household, add it, add it. It's not going to be the prettiest thing, but it may be one of the most effective, uh, transformative things to do in your life. So, um, yeah, I wish I could redo that one. But I can't, and I have a forgiving God. Amen? And uh, so, I can move on from today. So, we're jumping back into a portion of God's Word that we spent quite a bit of last year in, uh, the revelation to us known as the book of Hebrews. And last year, we feasted on really the first nine chapters of that book and, and how it emphasizes how great the Lord Jesus Christ is, how He's greater than the prophets, He's greater than the angels, He's greater than Moses, He's greater than the priest, He's greater than the high priest, He's greater than the sacrifices, He's, he's greater than all of that. 
And, uh, and so, rather than just jumping into chapter 10, which is where we left off, I thought uh, it would be good to kind of do a review this morning and, uh, and go through the first nine chapters. So grab something with a copy of the Scriptures on it and turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. Now, let me just warn you that, uh, as you know, when you travel halfway around the world and you come back, a body was not meant to change like that that quick. And so I've been up since 3.30 in the morning, and I have reworked this thing so many blasted times, I have no idea what's supposed to happen right now. And I've been chomping at the bit, but at any moment, it may die. So if that happens, just lay me down someplace and go enjoy an early lunch, okay? How about that for a deal? And uh, we'll just see what happens here. So just as, uh, just to reminders, and I don't know about you, but uh, boy, how desperately I need repetition uh, Hebrews, uh, the Hebrews uh, is a name that was first given to Abraham in Genesis 14, which interestingly enough was the same experience and account with Melchizedek, king of Salem and priest of Salem. And, uh, and, and there Abraham with Sarah is called a Hebrew. Now, we know that Abraham and Sarah had Isaac and Isaac uh, had born to him uh, Jacob and Esau, but Jacob was the one that God chose, and God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And so the Hebrews are the same group of people as the Israelites. Now, about 1,400 years later, about 600 BC, when the tribe of Judah was taken captive to Babylon, they became known as the Jews, a shortened firm form of Judah. But it didn't stay specifically referring to just the tribe of Judah. It became a way to refer to all those who are Israelites, all those who are Hebrews. So when you, when you hear the word Hebrews, it's synonymous with Israelites. It's synonymous with the Jews. It is those who are of an ethnicity that comes from Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and, and through Jacob. And so that's the people ethnically that we are talking about. Now, this letter was obviously written to those who were Hebrews who had embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah, as the Messiah, I should say. And we know that when the church was first born in Acts chapter 2, uh, as the gospel went out, it was a Jewish church. Uh, for, it was made up of almost all Jewish people. It's not for some time later that it went from Jerusalem to Samaria and Judea and then the uttermost parts of the world. And many of those that were there that on the day of Pentecost were from all over the world because it was the feast of Pentecost, and then they went back home. And it seems that this letter is written to those that were not in Jerusalem, not in Israel, but those who were scattered around. Some would even say those who are living in Rome. Why would he say that? Because this book, because it's written to Jewish background people, is filled with Old Testament Scriptures, but the Old Testament Scriptures are not quoted in Hebrew. They're quoted in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which would imply that Greek was their first and primary language and maybe their only language. So it's written to followers of the Lord Jesus who are Hebrews, they're Israelites, they're Jewish, and, and they're not living in the country of Israel, and it's very clear that they are facing intense pressure 
to walk away from saying Jesus is the Messiah back to traditional Judaism, back to believing you can keep the Old Testament law. What we just read a few moments ago. Back to believing in sacrifices of animals and bread and stuff like that. Back into believing that the priest and the high priest could make you right with God. Back into all of those kinds of things. And, and the pressure was intense. And this letter is written to say, don't do it. It's a matter of your life and death. Not just during these days, but eternally. Don't do it. Now, for those of us that are not Jewish, um, but we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the same idea is an application to us because we live in a world with intense pressures to drift away from who Jesus is as, a, as the Messiah. We, we face intense pressures. We face a lot of mockery. It's growing like crazy, and it's not going to probably let up. And so the same warnings that are in this letter, the same reminders of how great the Lord Jesus Christ is are so helpful to us today in 2020. And so one of the uniquenesses of this letter is that we don't know who wrote it. And, uh, and the other uniqueness is, is that this letter does not begin and come some kind of a slow, uh, let me get you acquainted let me bless you kind of a way. Uh, most of the letters begin with some kind of a greeting and some kind of a blessing and some kind of identification of the people that it's written to. You read the first few verses, which we're going to do in just a moment, and it is like jumping into a deep well, if you will, an infinitely deep well. I mean, it wastes no time in getting into the realities of who Jesus is. You get the sense that the Spirit of God working through whoever the human writer was says, we don't have time to mess around. Let's just get right to the crux of the issue is of who Jesus is. And so it's like you jump into this infinitely deep well that in some ways is absolutely disorienting, but as you continue to go through the book, it actually puts your life right side up because you understand the great and the glorious nature of the Lord Jesus Christ and what it means to walk by faith in Him, and you realize that He is the one. He is the only one. Angels can't do it. The prophets can't do it. Moses couldn't do it. The priests couldn't do it. Animal sacrifices couldn't do it. He's the only one who brings you into a right relationship with the living God. He's the only one who puts you in the blessed place of being able to say with King David, the Lord is my shepherd, I don't lack nothing at all. He's the only one like that. And so we've tried to capture that on the bulletin that Christ is the great high priest. And what do we mean by high priest? He's the only mediator between sinful me and holy God. He's the only one who can make a way for us to be right with the living God and to live in His blessings rather than His judgment and His condemnation. And the point of this whole book is exactly that. He alone saves 
completely. He alone saves completely. Look at the way the book begins in verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. This has just got to be one of the greatest blessings of all of time, is that God speaks to us. God speaks to us. And here it says specifically, he has spoken to us in his Son. Now, there's a lot of key words in there, but I want you just to notice who has he spoken to? Us. That's a big deal. He has spoken to us. And so I want you to say, God has spoken to me in his son, Jesus Christ. God has spoken to the people sitting around me. And as the book goes on, it makes a very individual application, and it makes application within the body of Christ. We haven't gotten to that part yet, but we will. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Think highly of each other. All those kinds of things. So I want to just, I want to give you a moment to pray, and I want to pray, God, speak to me this morning through your word. Speak to me about who Christ is. I may know a lot, or I may know nothing, but I don't know everything. So would you speak to me? Would you speak to us this morning? So would you just bow your head and just ask God to speak to you this morning by his spirit and through his word here in Hebrews. Lord, we want to thank you that you have spoken to us through this book. And we thank you that you're going to speak in whatever way you choose this morning, this morning. And we thank you for it. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So God has spoken to us in his son. Who is his son? What does it say about his son? Well, it says that right in the middle of verse 2 there, it says, whom he appointed heir of all things. Now, that is, is just a huge summary statement that God has spoken to us in his son, and he has appointed him. The word Christ literally means the appointed one, the chosen one, the anointed one. And one of the appointings of God the Father to God the Son is that he has appointed him heir of how many things? All things. Now, what is an heir? One, an heir is someone who's placed over something to control something, uh, to be responsible for something, to use something. It's all of those things. And so when someone is appointed an heir over something, then it goes on and describes what those responsibilities are, what the realm of their heirdom, if I guess, I don't even know that's a word, but it sounds kind of cool. Whatever the realm of their responsibility, and yeah, I, I can't even say it again. But anyway, what that is, and that's exactly what he does here, is, is he goes on in this next verse and a half, and look at what he is the heir of all things. He's the heir of all things because he created the world. He made the world. He created the world. He is the creator of the world. 
That's his deal. He spoke and brought it all into existence. All things, every person, and everything in the world. Secondly, it goes on and says, and he rules this world exactly like his father. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. What does that mean? It means as the heir of all things, he rules over it just like his father. He rules it in the full radiance of the glory of his father, and he rules it in the exact nature or characteristics of his father. Now, this might give you a flashback to Genesis 1 and 2. If it doesn't, I'll help you. In Genesis 1 and 2, God created Adam and Eve, and he said for them to rule over the creation just as he would. To rule in his image and likeness over the creation so that the creation of God would experience perfect godly ruling and experience the glory of God. And what had happened? They didn't do it, right? They failed at that. Christ is the second Adam, and as heir of all things, he rules over all things just like his father does. And he brings the glory of his father into all of that. You might remember uh, the Apostle Peter uh, uh, after the Lord's Supper. So, you know, he spent three and a half years with the Lord Jesus. Uh, he's been watching him. He's been living with him. And after the Lord's Supper, sometime that night, we read in John chapter 14, he said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. Don't you love the stupid questions that disciples ask? It gives me great hope because I ask a lot of them myself. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has what? Seen the Father. And as John would write, when he writes his gospel, says, we beheld him. The word made flesh. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so he's heir of all things, not because he just created all things, but he rules all things exactly like his father would. And then he goes on in the next thing and says he upholds all things by the word of his power. Do not ever think that this material universe just runs on the laws of nature. That's a lie. It runs because Christ, as heir of all things, upholds it by the word of his power. And so he created it all, he rules over it all, and he sustains it all by the word of his power. The next thing he says is, he made purification of sins. This moves into his redemptive work to sinful people in a, in a creation that is marred by sin, and this becomes the entire emphasis of the rest of the book of Hebrews. He made purification of sins. He took sinful people and he purified them to be in a right relationship with God by dealing with their sins. 
And that simple phrase is fleshed out over all of the next chapters. He did this by becoming one of us. He did this by suffering, it'll go on and tell us. He did this by dying as a propitiation to satisfy God's righteous wrath, which we deserve. He did this by sitting down at the right hand of God. He does this by empathizing with his brethren, you and me and followers of his, praying for them, giving them grace and mercy. He will one day return without any reference to sin and bring the full experience of salvation of God to all those who believe in him. He has fully purified all those who call upon him from their sin. And how do we know it's completely done? Because what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's a done deal. He is heir of those who are purified of their sins. And so, if you're thinking about turning back and listening to other things and trusting other people, other belief systems, who can compete with that? If you're a Jew, can angels? No. Can prophets? No. Moses? No. High priest? What's the answer? Animal sacrifices? No, that's the point of the whole book. And thus, it is summed up in this last statement. He has inherited a more excellent name than they, than the angels. He has inherited a more excellent name. We know his name as Jesus, the Christ. Paul, after walking through this great humbling, redemptive work of the Lord Jesus, say that God has given him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has the most excellent name he is the heir of all things. Now, the writer goes on now and quotes several things from the Old Testament, as will be his habit, because it is the Old Testament that the Jews would have believed. For the, us, the benefit is that this was not a new plan. This was always God's plan. It was always God's plan. Did God speak through the prophets? Yes. Has he used angels? Yes. Did he speak through Moses? Yes. Did he use the law to reveal who he was? Yes. Did the sacrifices, did he speak through them? Yes. Did he speak through the priest and the high priest? Yes. Did he speak through the tabernacle and the temple? Yes. But man, while they revealed enough to those generations for people to put their trust and faith in God and forever saved, ultimately, all of those things pointed forward to Jesus Christ the heir of all things. Now, if you look at verse 12, it talks about this creation. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? 
And, and very clearly here, it communicates that not everybody is going to recognize that God has spoken through His, fun, through his Son, who is heir of all things, that there's going to be those who are enemies of God, and they will be subjugated by becoming the footstool of God. And he picks this up in verse 5 of chapter 2 with this word, subjection. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are now speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. So there we have his incarnation and his resurrection and his ascension, and you have appointed him over the works of your hands you have put all things in subjection under his feet. And then a commentary on that Old Testament passage. For in subjecting all things to him, to Christ, he, God the Father, left nothing that is not subjected to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. And so there's a second thing. Not only is he heir of all things, but all things will be subject to him. All things will be subject to him. And, and what he does now, you'll notice if you pick up the end of verse 8, where it says, we do not yet see all things subjected to him, verse 9, but we do see him. And, and there's a beautiful thing here. We live in a world where we do not yet see all things subjected to him, Right? I mean, there's lots of things that are not living in subjection to Christ. Oftentimes, it's my own heart. <laughs> so there's lots of things not living in subjection to Him. But we do see who? We do see Him. And, and in these next verses, there's a beautiful portrait of Christ that is painted, of, of how He has brought people who will follow Him and what He has what, what being subjected to Christ looks like for those who will follow him, those who willingly subject themselves to Christ during this life. And let me just read a few, a few of the things that are here. Uh, so, for example, at the end of verse 9, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Those who have been subjected to Christ, those who are following Christ. Uh, and what's the word that, what's the title of Christ that we use to recognize we're subjected to Him? Lord, yeah, Lord. He is my Lord. For those, He tasted death for us. Why does it say tasted? Because it didn't keep Him there. <laughs> if you jump down to verse 11 and following there, It talks about how he has called and he has sanctified uh, from one father for which reason he is not ashamed to call us brethren. And so he, he brings us into a relationship, even to some extent with himself, uh, where we are brothers with him. Or if you will, we are the children of God. He uses that term at the end of verse 13. And so for those who are subjected to Christ during this life, he tasted death for us. He, he partook of death at the hands of God for us. 
and we become his brothers. We become his brothers and sisters. We become the children of God. And in verse 14, it goes on, it says, that he became flesh and blood, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Through his death on the cross, for those who have subjugated themselves to Christ, he has rendered the power of death impotent, and he has rendered Satan, the devil, impotent in our lives. He has subjugated Satan from having an effect upon us. In fact, in verse 15, he says, so that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their life. In fact, he says, if you are subjugated to me, if you'll call me Jesus, my Lord, you don't even have to be fearful of death. Death is taken care of. Satan is taken care of. You don't have to be concerned about any of that. And so what's the application? Verse 17, Therefore he has had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he was suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So let me just sum all that up by adding one more phrase here. All things will be subject to him. Either you'll be under his feet and part of the footstool, or you'll be one of his followers. Everything will be subjected to him because he is the heir of all things. And this book is then filled with exhortations to not stop following Jesus Christ and to experience his subjugation as his footstool, like Satan experiences, like even death has experienced. And so, the book just screams so loud, this is a big deal. It's a big deal that you understand who Jesus is and that you live following him. And it is filled with exhortations to listen and obey. It's, it's like a mother. This letter is like a mother who knows that their two-year-old does not understand the physics of mass and momentum. Specifically, what happens if a car hits them? And so she teaches, she exhorts, she yells at him, she disciplines them, and even walks over and shows them the dead dog that got hit by the car to save them from the painful, deadly realities that they don't yet comprehend. And this letter is God saying, you, you need to comprehend this. 
and I'm going to yell at you, and I'm going to remind you of some things that happened in the past in the Old Testament when I spoke through prophets and through angels and through Moses and through the priest, and those people died because they didn't listen to them, and you think you can blow me off and get away with it? You do not understand the ramifications of understanding who Christ is and what it means to follow Him and don't drift away and don't fall away. And so it's filled with these very strong exhortations. And so let me just read some of them. Go back to chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, what reason? Because God has spoken to us through His Son. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. What is the natural direction of our spiritual lives? It's always drift. It will be till we get to heaven. Drift is deadly. Pay much closer attention to what we have heard. For the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. How will we... Oh, verse 2 is a reference to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. If people who blew off God and blew off His law got judged for it, and there was thousands that got killed on Mount Sinai. You remember that big party they had? Yeah. Here's a rhetorical question, verse 3. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? What's the answer to that? We won't. We won't. God's trying to help us to understand mass and momentum. He's trying to understand the greatness and the beauties of who Christ is and what it means to live in the great, great salvation that He has given to us. Jump over to chapter 3, and here it's, it's uh, raising Moses because many Israelites, and you remember even the Pharisees says, we follow Moses, we're not following you, and, and so it was easy for people to go back to Moses, and he makes a comparison between Moses and himself, but then in verse 7, therefore just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the days of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that, this generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, a couple things here. Verse 7, you'll notice, recognizes the Holy Spirit inspiration of the Old Testament. That's just a cool thing there. But this is in reference to God speaking through Moses in leading them out of slavery and on Mount Sinai and the promise of taking them into the promised land. And what happened? Many of them hardened their hearts. They didn't like their circumstances. They wouldn't keep believing God. They wouldn't believe what God had said through Moses. And so, what did it say? As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. I figured it out one time, and this number could be off. I didn't think about rechecking this because it just entered my head. But um, 
I figured it out. There were several thousand of them they buried every single day for 40 years. Well, 38 years after Mount Sinai. Why? Why did they have to get buried in the wilderness? Why couldn't they enter the promised land? Because they hardened their heart. God didn't do what they wanted him to do. He was going to do what he had planned to teach them to live by faith. And so he goes on, take care, brethren, verse 12, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day. Here's this communal aspect. As long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that those who were not able, they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, let us fear. If while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it, for indeed we have had good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not heard united by faith in those who heard. And so God calls us to believe him because of who Christ is and because of what he has done. And when we do that, we enter into a rest. And that's what he goes on to describe here. A rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. A rest knowing that he's in heaven interceding for us. A rest where we can come boldly before his throne and receive grace and mercy in our time of need. A rest that he who began the good work is going to bring it to a completion. A rest that he will cause all things to work together for good. A rest that one day he's going to wrap all this up and we're going to be done with anything that has the stench of sin on it. That's a rest that he invites us into. It's a rest Jesus invited people into during his life. Remember he said what? Come unto me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. It's a rest of the soul. It doesn't mean there isn't hell to pay and pain in this world and in this life, but there's a rest because of who our Savior is, who Christ is. He's the heir of all things, and he's going to bring everything into subjection. How do we live in this rest? Jump down to verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that one will not fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are open and laid bare 
to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. How do we live in this rest? The Spirit uses the Word of God in our lives to reveal the realities of our hearts so that we can find our rest in Christ, so that we can obey him. But we also have a great high priest, verse 14, who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things we are, yet without sin. Therefore, we can also draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We live letting the Spirit use His Word, and we live drawing near to Jesus Christ because He understands. He sympathizes, and He gives grace, and He gives mercy when we've screwed up. And so we live in that rest. The next four chapters, chapters 5 through 9, really zero in on how Christ is the perfect high priest. He's the perfect high priest who presented to his father the perfect sacrifice, not the sacrifice of animals, but the sacrifice of his own holy, perfect life on the cross. And because of that perfect sacrifice, he established a new and a better covenant. And he's in the presence of God praying for and listening to us. But he will not forever be in heaven, making sure that we enjoy the fullness of salvation. He will return one day. Go over to the end of chapter 9. Let's just jump to that. Let's just jump into verse 26. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often. He's comparing him with the regular other priest since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifest, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. He's coming again. And he's not coming to deal with our sin. He's coming to bring the fullness of salvation to us and to this world and to everything. It's in First Thessalonians Chapter 4, verses 16 and 7 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Oh, Jesus Christ is heir of all things. And he will subject all things to himself. And so let me take you back to one more exhortation here. It's found in chapter 5, verse 14. 
And in this passage, he's talking about because of the grandness and the bigness of who Jesus is, spend your whole life learning about him. Spend your whole life living in relationship with him. Says verse 14, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And he says in the verses before, milk is appropriate for the stage of infants, but, but don't be delayed maturity. Get off the milk and onto the meat because there's no end to the glories of Christ that you can spend the rest of your life exploring and expanding and being wowed by. He's that big of a subject. And so, verse six, chapter 6, verse 1, leave the elementary teaching about Christ and press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. Don't just stay in that cycle of repentance from dead works. Get on track with being in awe of who God is and the wonder of who He is. In verse 7 and 8, he uses the analogy of be like soil that drinks the rain, and it brings forth vegetation that's useful for other people and receives a blessing from God. Be that rich soil in your own life and heart with God's Word and God's Spirit and who He is. In verse 9, what should our attitude be towards other? Beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this way. Be really convinced about other people and better things about them and enter into their lives with that viewpoint. So be growing and be helping other people grow. For those who become subjects of the Lord Jesus Christ during this lifetime, whew, it's off the charts. For Satan and his angelical, angelic followers, they are eternally the footstool. For those who reject Christ, either they've lived in lifelong rejection of Christ, or they made some kind of a human decision to follow Jesus because they thought it would improve their life, but they drifted away, they fell away. They're both the same people. They become the footstool of God. But to those who will trust Him and walk by faith, oh man, it is off the charts good. So why does God scream at us in this book? Why does He say things so strongly? Because we, just like the two-year-old that does not understand mass and momentum, we don't understand what a big deal this is. This is the big deal. And that two-year-old will grow up to understand mass and momentum, and you're not going to have to tell him to stay out of the street anymore and not get hit by a car. And we need to be those people, amen? We need to be growing up in that. Well, Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, we ask that you would speak to each of us, and um, we trust that you've done that. I trust that you've done that. And let me give each of us just a chance. If God's put his finger on something in your life, uh, I just want to ask you to respond to him in obedience. Don't harden your hearts. Don't blow them off. 
It's a very loving thing that he's done to put his finger on this area. And it could be in a huge area of encouragement to cause you to believe something that is too good for you to believe. It could be in an area of repentance that's needed. But let me just give you a chance to respond to that. Thank you for being the good, good father. Thank you for being willing to yell at us and scream at us and talk about how other people paid the price so that we don't have to, but quite the opposite. We can live in the riches of your grace. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Please stand.